Chapter 12 Live with Anticipation for Christ's Return He who loves Christ will long to see Him and will not be content with only the encounters that come by faith. The lover seeks the absent loved one, the wife the husband, the child the mother. And in the same way, you seek and await your Lord. It is not enough that you can communicate with Him daily by the letters brought and carried by faith. You long to see Him face to face. Without this, there is a blank in your life, a void in your existence, a cloud over your love, and a faltering in your song. The saved one desires to meet his Savior and feels that his joy will always be imperfect until then. It is the mark of a disciple that he waits for the Son of God from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, King James Version. That he loves, looks for, longs for the appearing of Christ. Let this mark be seen on you and be like the Corinthian saints, of whom the apostle said, You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. Let me sum up with a few practical closing remarks. I am the Lord your God was God's greeting of love to Israel. Leviticus 11.44. It is still his salutation of grace to everyone who has believed in the name of his Son, Christ Jesus. God becomes our God the moment we receive his testimony about His beloved Son. This new relationship between God and us, by which He calls us His, and we call Him ours, is the simple result of a believed gospel. If anyone reading these lines is led to ask how they may become a son, we answer in the words of truth. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 5, 1. Nothing less than believing can bring about this sonship, and nothing more is needed. The joy and the peace and the love and the warmth, these are the effects of faith, but they are not faith. They are the fruits of a conscious sonship that has been formed by the belief in the divine testimony to Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the lost. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 1.12 God's simple message of grace contains peace for the sinner, and the sinner extracts the peace within it, not by effort or feeling, but by simple belief in the true sayings of God. Good news brings gladness by being believed, 
and it refuses to yield up its precious treasure to anything but simple faith. Believe the tidings of peace from God, and the peace is all yours. It is not to the one who works or feels or loves, but to the one who believes that God says, I am the Lord your God. And when God used the word believing, he meant just what he said and intended nothing other than what man means by that word. The Bible is full of the word, and had he meant anything else, he would have told us and not allowed us to be misled or deceived by our misunderstanding of it. If he had meant working or feeling or loving, he would have said so and not allowed us to wrongly conclude that believing was really sufficient. What a book of deception and mystery the Bible would be if believing did not mean believing, but something less or something more. To make it something less would be to take away from God's Word as truly as if we had torn out a book from the Bible. To make it something more would be to add to God's Word as truly and as sinfully as if we had forged another gospel, or another epistle, or accepted the Apocrypha as part of the inspired record. We make God a liar when we refuse to take Him at His word or give Him credit for speaking the simple truth by which we are saved when we believe. But let us remember the other side of the statement. We are found to be liars when we add to His word. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs 30, 5. King James Version. Can we make it purer, or more transparent, or simpler? We add to it because we fear it might be too simple, too childlike, too blessed. We put something of our own into it to make it more substantial and complete. And that something, call it feeling, or realizing, or loving, destroys the divine simplicity and transparency of faith. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Proverbs 36. Does casting dust upon the sunbeam improve its quality, or make it more like the sun from which it came? Would pouring filth into a cup of pure spring water make it clearer and more refreshing? Whatever we add to believing, tends to destroy its real nature and to weaken its effects. If God had said that we are to be saved by believing that the flood overflowed the earth and that the sun once stood still in the heavens, we would have understood what he meant by that. And is there any more difficulty in understanding him when he says, everyone who believes is freed from all things? Acts 13.39 Does believing mean one thing in Genesis and another in Romans? Does it mean one thing to Abraham and another to us? Does it mean one thing today and another tomorrow? 
Or is the formula of salvation, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Acts 16.31, not meant to be the simplest and most understandable declaration ever made to mankind? We believe the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus died and rose again, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. That saves. We believe the divine promise attached to this testimony, that life is given to every person who believes this heavenly testimony, and this belief in the promise, which some call appropriation, assures us on God's word that this life is ours personally. We do not gain life by believing that life is ours, nor do we get Christ by believing that Christ is ours. This is as absurd as the idea of getting our debts paid by believing that they are paid. But we get life and Christ by believing God's good news concerning Jesus and his finished work upon the cross. There is enough in Christ to pay every man's debt, but no man's debt is actually paid until he has taken God at his word and believed the account God has given of his Son. It is the blood that pacifies my conscience. The sight of it is all I need to remove fear and gain confidence. It is not my realizing that I see it that gives me boldness, but my direct and simple sight of it. My guilt passes away from me as soon as I believe, and I don't need to wait until I believe in my own act of believing before becoming conscious of this deliverance. The blood contains my pardon and my peace, and by looking at it, I extract the pardon and the peace. I don't need to look at my looking. I only need to look at the blood. If I cannot extract from it pardon and peace, I will never be able to extract them from my own act of seeing. I am to believe in Jesus, not in my own faith, nor in my own feelings. I am to look to the cross, not to my own convictions or repentance. The well of peace is not within me, and to let down my bucket into my own heart for the purpose of drawing up the water of peace is mockery as well as foolishness. I do not fill the cup of peace out of anything that is in myself. Christ has filled that cup already, long, long ago, and in love he presses it to my parched lips. Let me drink from it at once, for all the peace of God, the peace of heaven, is there. When God said to Israel, I am the Lord your God, he added this, Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.44 And he added this also, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 45 
God calls us to be holy. He becomes our God to make us like himself. He calls us to partake in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He expects that we will represent him among our fellow men through our resemblance to himself. The carrying out of this holiness is his own work, the operation of his spirit. Whether our perfection in holiness is to be brought about gradually or instantly is a question to be determined solely by his word and not by any theories of our own. We can admit that God could make each soul perfect the moment he believes, but we cannot deny that he may have wise reasons for not doing this, wise reasons for gradual growth. He has given us no instance in the Bible of anyone made instantaneously sinless, either at conversion or in the afterlife. All the people of faith and holiness, the people full of the Holy Spirit, the ones he presents to us as our models, are imperfect to the end of their days, needing forgiveness and cleansing constantly. God glorifies himself in our imperfect bodies, in an imperfect church, on an imperfect earth. His object here is to glorify himself in imperfection and growth, as in the future he will glorify himself in perfection and completeness of every kind. Gradual growth is the law of all things here, man, beasts, trees, and flowers. So, unless we had some very notable example in Scripture of a sinless man, or of miraculous and instantaneous perfection by an act of faith, we are not inclined to accept the theory of instantaneous sinlessness even if it is veiled under the appealing name of entire consecration or accompanied by a profession of personal unworthiness, a personal unworthiness that, however, does not seem to require any actual confession of sin. Yet, God calls us to be holy. He expects us to grow more and more unlike this world, and more and more like the world that is to come. He expects us to follow him who did no sin, even though the attainment of perfection will not be in a day or a year, but the growth of a lifetime. When God so often challenges his own, it is not because of a lack of complete and constant sinlessness, but because of a lack of daily growth. Let us grow. Let us bring forth fruit. Scripture. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Romans 13:14. What is the use of taking so long to make us sinless? Some may ask. I answer, go and ask God. What was the use of taking six days to bring creation to perfection? Why did he let sin enter our world when he could have kept it out? 
What was the use of not making the whole church perfect at once? Why did he not make Abraham or David or Paul perfect at once? He could have done so. Why did he not? Let us truly and soberly study the Word of God in regard to the past history of his saints. Otherwise, it may be said to some in our day who think themselves on a far higher platform than others, more perfect than Paul or John, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Romans 9.20 Let us grow. The impatience that demands instant perfection is unbelief, refusing to recognize God's spiritual laws in the new creation. The gradual evolution of the heavenly life in a lifelong journey of conflict and imperfection is the way in which sin is unfolded, the human heart exposed to view, the power of the cross tested, the efficacy of the blood manifested, and the power, as well as the love of Father, Son, and Spirit, magnified. God's purpose is not simply to reveal Himself, but to reveal man, not simply man dead in trespasses and sin, but man after he has been made alive unto righteousness, to exhibit, step by step and day by day, this most solemn and humbling of all processes, by which the inner man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Man is revealed while the strength of the human will for evil is manifested. The awful tenacity of sin is displayed, and any sinner's salvation is demonstrated to be absolutely hopeless except through the omnipotence of God himself. Let us grow daily and hourly. Let us grow down. Let us grow up. Let us sink our roots deeper. Let us spread out our branches more widely. Let us not only blossom and bud, but let us bring forth fruit, ripe and plentiful on every branch. Scripture my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. Many things hinder this growth and fruit-bearing. Consider the following. 1. Unbelief. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews 3:19. Unbelief poisons the tree at its very root. Christ cannot do mighty works in us or for us where there is unbelief. Matthew 13, 58. Only believe. Mark 5, 36. Have faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two. All things are possible to him who believes. Mark 9, 23. He who believes in me, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. John 7.38 2. Lack of love. No love, no fruit. Much love, much fruit. 
Hebrews 10.24 Labor of love means the labor produced and spurred on by love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Love is, by its very nature, fruit-bearing. When love grows cold, Matthew 24.12, when we leave our first love, Revelation 2.4, then everything that deserves the name of fruit dies away. If there is fruit at all, it is poor and unripe. Our zeal is the zeal of Jehu. 2 Kings 10.16 Our warmth is false fire. Our energy is only the strength of the flesh. Our work is the work of men urged on by a false stimulus. Our words, however earnest, can come only from self. If anyone asks, how can I begin to love? I answer, look to Jesus. Deal with him about it. Learn to love all over again by learning again his love for you. I do not say, work and that will stimulate you to love. No, it is not first work and then love, but first love and then work. Grow in love by dealing more with Jesus personally, and then love will set you aflame. You will work without being told. You will work in the freedom of fellowship and in the joy of love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 Galatians 5.6 and 2 Corinthians 5.14 3. Selfishness Self, in all its forms, is a hindrance to our growth. Romans 14.7 Self-will, self-sufficiency, self-indulgence, self-importance, self-glory, self-seeking, self-brooding, all of these weaken fruitfulness. Denying self is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our journey on earth as followers of Christ. Mark 8.34 Selfishness can take the form of covetousness, or love of money, of luxury, or love of food and drinks, and the good things of this life of religious decadence, or love of excitement, of spiritual restlessness, or running from meeting to meeting, book to book, opinion to opinion, or minister to minister, of craving for religious stimulants and spices, and resistance to what is tame or common, however good and true it is. These are some of the forms of selfishness that destroy both growth and fruitfulness. How can a man grow when he is pampering himself instead of crucifying the flesh, when he is indulging and cherishing the old self instead of nailing him to the cross, when he is enjoying softness and ease and worldly comfort instead of enduring hardship and taking up his cross and considering his earthly body to be dead to immorality? Romans 8.13, Galatians 5.24, and Colossians 3.5. 4. Covetousness The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 
Few things are more hateful in a Christian man than this. Few things more completely destroy his influence, and few things more sadly or more justly make him the scorn of the world than eagerness for money or stinginess in parting with it. The covetous man cannot grow. He will remain a stunted Christian forever. The love of money is poison to the soul. If we do not lay out our resources for God to use in blessing others, it will become a blight on our spirituality, the destruction of our religious life. Proverbs 38 and 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 Be generous, be big-hearted, be open-handed, be loving, give freely if you want to grow. 5. Pride Self-satisfaction in any shape or self-admiration of any kind in regard to person, property, accomplishments, or position, these are immensely hurtful to spiritual life. True godliness prospers only in the humble heart, the heart that, as it becomes more and more satisfied with Christ, becomes more and more dissatisfied with itself. If the master was meek and lowly, why should his disciple be anything else? 6. Easy-mindedness Some consider taking things easy to be a great virtue. Not getting excited or zealous is regarded as proof of a noble and well-balanced mind. We might admit this to be the case if we were only considering worldly matters. To lose a fortune and yet to be calm is good. To tolerate provocation and remain unruffled is also good. But to take religion easy is not to be commended in the same way. Easygoing Christians are strangers to the fervor of John or Paul. To be content while still uncertain of our salvation is something very awful. To be content while making no progress or perhaps going backwards is nearly as awful. Easy-minded religion is just the same as lifeless coldness, though perhaps not so repulsive to others. The good-natured formality of thousands is just the hateful lukewarmness of Laodicea. Revelation 3.16 But let these hints suffice. They will help a little and guide a little and teach a little and warn a little. In reading them, there should be much self-questioning and asking, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? A revival time is one of blessing, but it is also one of peril. The running well and the turning back, the flocking to the cross and the turning away from it, the heartfelt confession and the subsequent silence, these are things that have been witnessed in other times and will likely be witnessed again. This is the reason we are eager to give all the guidance and counsel we can. Let the young listen. Let them humble themselves to Christian counsel. Let them take heed and watch their own footsteps carefully. But still, we do not want to dishearten anyone. Do not be discouraged, we say, but be of good cheer. 
Do not faint, though you may often be weary. Though we urge you to count the cost, still we say to you, as God said to Israel, See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Deuteronomy 1.21 We do not want to be like those to whom God said, Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel? Numbers 32.7 We remember it is said that the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Numbers 21.4, King James Version and that this discouragement led to sin. We do not want to discourage the weak ones, for we remember God. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Isaiah 42.3 He is the one who gathers the lambs with his arm, who carries them in his bosom, and who gently leads those that are with young. Isaiah 40.11, King James Version. We say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Isaiah 35.4. And we want to encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Isaiah 35.3. You say the fearful are among those who are cast into the lake of fire, and you fear you are one of them. Not so. The fearful specified in the book of Revelation, chapter 21-8, are the cowardly who have refused to confess to Christ, who have turned their back on Christ. They are very different from the fearful spoken of in Isaiah. Be of good courage. You have God on your side. You have Christ to fight for you. You have the Holy Spirit to sustain and comfort you. You have more encouragements than discouragements. You have the example of millions who have gone before you. You have precious and magnificent promises. 2 Peter 1.4 You have many fellow travelers and fellow soldiers on your right side and on your left. You have a bright kingdom in view, and it will make up for all trial and conflict here on earth. And remember... The way is short. The toil will soon be over. The battle will not last forever. Greater is he who is with you than all that can be against you. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his love and in his power. Put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10-11 Do you say that you are in Christ? and that you are abiding in him? Then you ought to walk as he walked. You are bound to follow his footsteps. And if you say that you are not bound to do so, you are setting aside the divine teaching the apostle has given to us. The man who says, I am Christ's, is under obligation to imitate him. Both duty and love require him to do so not duty without love, and not love without duty. Duty without love would mean reluctance and compulsion. 
Love without duty would mean love fixed on the wrong object, an object it would not be right to love. Duty and love going together mean that our love is fixed on a worthy and lawful object. In loving Him, we are feeling what is right, and in obeying Him, we are doing what is right. If I love something it is not my duty to love, I sin. If I love that which it is my duty to love, I am doing the right thing, the thing God delights in. If I honor my parents, I do so for two reasons: one, because God has said, "Honor your father and your mother." Two, because I love them. The two things, the duty and the love, are in perfect harmony with each other. It is a dutiful thing to love. And it is a loving thing to be dutiful. Suppose you have a mother in Scotland and a father in India. You love both of them as truly as a child can love. But the question may arise as to which of them you are to visit or to stay with. Are you to remain in Scotland or go to India? Love cannot determine this question, for you love both equally. How is it to be decided? By duty, you ask, "Is it my duty to go to my father or to remain with my mother?" If you decide to leave your mother from a sense of duty, would she doubt your love and say, "I do not want to hear it"? And when you went to India and told your father that it was a sense of duty that brought you to him, would he scorn you and say, "I do not want your duty. Give me your love." Duty is a right. And proper motive, it is again and again referred to in Scripture, as the words "ought," "are bound," "must," "debtor," "owe," and the like abundantly show. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. First John two six. We read such passages as the following: You also ought to wash one another's feet, John thirteen fourteen. We have done only that which we ought to have done, Luke seventeen ten. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, Romans fifteen one. So husbands ought also to love their own wives. Ephesians five twenty eight, we ought always to give thanks to God, Second Thessalonians one three, we should always give thanks, Second Thessalonians two thirteen, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, First John three sixteen, we also ought to love one another, First John four eleven. These are just a few out of many passages in which duty is spoken of in very plain terms. That duty and love should go together is not proof that there is no such thing as duty, or that a Christian should rise above duty into the region of pure love, as Romish mystics have held. Duty means the thing that is due. Should we not do it because it is due, because it is the right and proper thing? Let us exercise our common sense and understand the meaning of words, 
whether Greek or English, before soaring into transcendental regions, where neither prophets nor apostles have gone before us. There is a danger of running to excess in our day, of soaring too high and getting away from both scripture and common sense, of indulging in a sentimentalism that looks very spiritual, but that, when analyzed, is simply absurdity, or at best, a one-sided exaggeration of some isolated truth. There is great danger, in a time of spiritual awakening, of being carried away by diverse and strange doctrines. Let us hold tightly to the word. This is the only way we can be steadfast and sober-minded. Only by feeding on the word and being guided by it can we maintain a noble and healthy faith free from error, following the old paths of reformers, apostles, prophets, and patriarchs, not shaken by novelties, but also not bound by bigotry or self-will. He who has died, says the apostle, is freed from sin, Romans 6, 7, or more precisely, he who has died is justified from sin, Death was the penalty, and one who has paid the penalty is legally justified. There is no further claim against him. We pay the penalty when we take the death of the substitute as our own, and God counts the penalty as paid when he obtains our consent to the exchange. The thought of having paid the penalty gives peace to the conscience, and the thought of God considering it paid gives us peace with Him. When we come to understand the meaning and value of the work upon the cross, when we accept what God has declared concerning all who believe His testimony to that work, the burden drops and we enter into freedom. With that freedom comes holiness. From then on, we seek to conform to Him who has set us free and who bids us to follow him in the path of conformity to the Father's will. With that freedom comes love, love to him who has brought our souls out of prison by going into prison for us. With that love comes zeal, the zeal of him who followed after his lost ones until he had brought them back, of him who said, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 69, 9. With this love and zeal, there comes self-denial, the self-denial of him who did not please himself, Romans 15, 3, who lived on earth solely for others, who, though rich, for our sakes became poor. Of all this, let us always remember that the root is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1, and that this peace comes from the knowledge of the peacemaking blood, the blood of the one divine peace offering. To know him is peace. It is from the sacrificial blood that we extract the peace that is the beginning of all service, all religion, all righteousness. No condemnation is the beginning of the life of freedom and self-denial and zeal. 
We cease to know the law as our enemy and begin to know it as our friend. For that which is holy and righteous and good, Romans 7.12, should always be our delight, our joy, our guide. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Romans 7.22 is one of our truest watchwords. We were set free from the law only in order that we might delight in the law, and in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8.4 With the law satisfied, and not only satisfied, but transformed into a friend, speaking not condemnation, but pardon, not wrath, but love, we walk onward and upward, realizing in that blessed law what David realized when he said, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 19, 8 and 10.